Welcome to the Electric Wire podcast. We bring you news and views on the most pressing issues facing Wisconsin's electric industry from policymakers, executives, and customer and environmental advocates. Bringing you these discussions, we are the Customers First Coalition. Here's your host, Executive Director Kristen Jilks. All right. Well, welcome back to the Electric Wire listeners. I'm your host, Kristen Jilks, and today we are discussing pumped hydro storage potential and the energy grid. I am joined by three very special guests. With me today are Brent Ridge, the president and CEO of Dairyland Power Cooperative, John Carr, the vice president of strategic growth, Dairyland Power Cooperative, and Dr. Timothy Scarlett, who is an associate professor of archaeology and anthropology at Michigan Tech University. Welcome to the three of you. And Brent, I will start with you. First of all, welcome back to the Electric Wire. You were last here in 2022 after the Dairyland Annual Meeting. And this year we have you back in June. So bring us up to speed with what's been happening at Dairyland since we last spoke. Well, thanks, Kristen. And thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to be here. And I appreciate everything that Customer First does for for our industry and other industries, we really uh, appreciate what you do from a communication and education perspective. So when we last talked, I think the, the background or the backdrop was very high, um, very high uh, gas prices driving up market prices. And in the time since then, a whole bunch of things have changed. We've seen the gas prices drop. We've seen market prices moderate a little bit, but what's interesting is we're starting to see the impact of fossil fuel closures on market dynamics. We're seeing, we're seeing our, our gas plants, our peaking plants that were intended to run you know, 60 times a year, running hundreds of times a year when uh, the wind goes away and at night. So the closure of, of these coal plants, the gas plants are really starting to have an impact on the pricing, the stability, and potentially the reliability of, of the system, the electrical system in which we work in. And so we've really approached two things pretty aggressively. We talked last about uh, small modular reactors, and that's something that we're looking at to be this non-carbon emitting uh, baseload resource that will that will eventually come online to supplement the current nuclear fleet. But that's, that's off in the future, a decade, let's say a decade or more. And uh, right now the economics and the schedule of, of nuclear is still in question among not just the anti-nuclear folks, but the pro-nuclear folks. And so what we've started to look at now are what are storage options for providing grid stability, grid reliability when the wind's not blowing and the sun's not shining, which is actually guaranteed to happen uh, at night. So what do we do at night? How do we keep the system reliable at night? Right now it's fossil fuels. And we'll see at any given day, uh, at least 70% of, of the MISO output is covered by fossil fuel resources, about 10 to 15% nuclear. And frankly, we need a viable uh, non-carbon emitting either storage option that can discharge for multiple hours per day. And we think pump hydro does that. So traditional pump hydro is definitely connected to a river and moves the water up to a higher elevation. That creates a whole lot of challenges environmentally. And uh, what we've seen uh, with mine storage, which I know Timothy will talk a lot about, knows a lot more about it than I do, but the, the mine storage concept of using uh, existing abandoned underground mines to create the, uh, the head differential that can create the energy in the evening or during peak times, uh, it, it really seems to be the, one of the better solutions right now being looked at and, and the key thing is providing a large amount of energy. So utility scale energy, think 100 megawatts, 200 megawatts, 300 megawatts, and, and, and provide it for eight to 12 hours. That is currently what batteries cannot do that pump storage can do. And what mine storage does is uh, allows us to, to research and look at and fill that gap 
that the batteries right now are not. I'm not saying in a number of years, batteries won't uh, mature to that point. So really, uh, as we see new proposed government regulation, like the EPA has been, uh, been issuing, that puts us in a very difficult position. If they're going to take away our fossil fuel resources quicker than the, the industry can handle, we need an option and mine storage is part of that. So talked a little bit about the macro MISO impact of gas prices and then sort of worked our way back into, we've really got to have a good storage option that discharges energy in, a, in, in utility scale amounts over a significant duration. Well, thank you so much for that, Brent. And I am looking forward to, over the course of our conversation, learning more about how Dairyland is planning to explore pumped hydro as a potential option. Um, now, John Carr, let's check in with you. John, it's been a little longer since you've been on the electric wire. It was back in 2021. And since that time, your role at Dairyland has changed from VP of Power Supply to VP of Strategic Growth. So I want to hear a little bit more from you about what you're focusing on now and how that fits in with Dairyland's Hydro exploration. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Kristen. And it's uh, good to be back on the program. Thanks for the opportunity. So in, in the transition for me, um, largely it's been about uh, our resource diversification effort, focusing on that, uh, and also our plans to reduce our CO2 intensity uh, between now and 2030. Um, so less focus on the day-to-day -day operations and more looking at this transformation and how does Darylin uh, participate in that effort. So we're very excited. Um, we, we are um, working with the USDA in their new era program. Uh, it's a large program that will allow for um, some of the renewable projects that we had planned. Uh, Darlin had uh, plans to add a lot of additional wind and solar over the next five to 10 years. Uh, this USDA new grant program, new era program that brings in grant opportunities for cooperatives. Uh, Darlin will be working to make an application uh, in that program and participate. So plans to bring on a lot more wind and solar uh, over the next five to 10 years. And along with that, it brings challenges as it relates to the intermittency of those resources. So in conjunction with the renewable energy that we're looking to add, uh, we need to find storage solutions. Uh, and that's where mine storage comes into play for us. We think it's a, a fabulous opportunity for us to partner uh, with Michigan Tech University and mine storage of Sweden uh, to deploy this resource and make it a reality in the upper Midwest. So. Good to, be get, good to be back and looking forward to uh, more details uh, on, on this to come. Thanks, John. All right, Dr. Scarlett, let's turn to you. Tell us a little bit more about your role at Michigan Tech, as well as the partnership between Michigan Tech and Dairyland to help on this project. Sure, thank you, Kristen. We're, uh, we're very excited to be supporting Dairyland in this effort uh, because we've been thinking about uh, pumped underground storage hydro for, for some years now. Uh, and we became involved in this probably starting in boy, 2017 or 2018. It's, it's been a while now. Um, and it really arose at Michigan Tech because of a unique kind of situation that we have. We're uh, a, a research intensive university in um, uh, Michigan's Upper Peninsula. And we're uh, in a, a former mining region of the United States. Um, uh, our university has a, a Department of Social Sciences that has two main research groups and graduate education, graduate study um, um, areas. One dealing with industrial heritage and archeology span and one dealing with environmental and energy policy. Um, and those two groups have worked for years kind of in parallel, uh, intersecting occasionally on, on topics. Uh, but then back in 2017 or so, 
one of my colleagues came into my office uh, and he had just come back from a conference in the UK uh, talking about hydropower storage questions. Um, and um, he, he struck up a conversation with me about uh, why the Upper Peninsula of Michigan doesn't have extensive hydropower. And um, we, we talked about that uh, for a little while. And, and as we began to think about this question of abandoned mines and, and their potential for underground uh, uh, assets in energy development um, and all the potential benefits that they present, um, um, we got more and more excited about it. And we talked more and more and we put together a team of people to start thinking about it. Um, turned out we were not the first people to come up with this idea, as generally happens with good ideas. Um, we were able to um, earn a small research grant from the, the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation to do a study because we quickly came to the realization that um, this is all so hypothetical and there are so many choices you can make in design and, and so many differences in the landscape of energy in different parts of the of the country or the world that you really needed to pick a place and start doing work um, and we completed a study uh, here in in uh, michigan in the upper peninsula um, uh, with the support of the sloan foundation and the results were so promising that we continued our work and we've been pursuing it now uh, in in different case studies around the world um, um, so we were really thrilled when um, a company that we've been following for some years, this Swedish company, Mind Storage, um, uh, and Dairyland had formed a partnership and approached us to help uh, support them in their work. Um, um, my background, it's, it may be odd to have an archaeologist in the conversation, uh, but my background as a, an archaeologist has been studying mining communities and mining technologies and, and uh, mining landscapes and environments um, for decades now. And when I um, started in on all these conversations, I've always then been able to bring to the table the question uh, or the perspective, not just of of um, an effective researcher for the history of mines and how that helps with the planning process, but also um, what is the what what do these opportunities mean for mining communities and post mining communities and how um, um, how might they experience these opportunities? Um, um, so we were able to put together a really diverse group of people, all these different kinds of topical experts but always bringing a broad perspective on um, um, why this does or does not make sense in particular contexts, that it's not just a technical problem to us, it's also a social question and a policy question and an economics question and an environment question. Um, um, so that really, uh, I hope sort of encapsulates our background. Um, um, and my role as a, a, a supporter of all this research and development. That was really helpful, Dr. Scarlett. Thank you so much. Um, before we jump into some of the logistics of how this storage system would work, I wanted to ask Brent and John, what made you jump in, unintended, on this idea, when did you first start thinking about it and developing plans um, around this idea of pumped hydro storage? John, I'll jump in, kind of talk about it strategically, and then you can talk about it, sort of what your staff is looking at from the economics. So from a strategic perspective, as I mentioned earlier, uh, providing um, long discharge utility scale storage is critical to a reliable, affordable transition to clean energy. It's absolutely necessary. If we're going to uh, release our reliance on fossil fuels, we have to have bat battery storage, pump storage, 
pick a storage. We have to have a storage that can be discharged over long periods of time, pick 12 hours, and be done so at utility scale. And when we look at every other option, pump storage filters to the top. And when we saw mine storage, we saw it removing some significant hurdles to pump storage. Traditional pump storage is extremely expensive. And in the Northwest where I came from three years ago, we were looking at several very large pump storage projects that were traditional coming from a river into an elevated reservoir and then discharging it uh, into the river again. And so what mine storage brought were those, the two big criterias, which was utility scale and dischargeable over a longer period of time. So it checked the two boxes for me strategically. And then when John brought that to me, once I checked those two boxes, I asked John, I guess we now go to work and see if it makes economic sense into our portfolio. And then I'll turn it over to John to sort of talk about some of the strategic plus tactical things that he's looking at. Yeah, thanks, Brent. And um, Kristen, thanks for the question. As, as we think about you know, what, what made us jump in here and, and partner with Michigan Tech and Mine Storage, when we think about the traditional utility scale battery storage, um, during COVID-19, all of us felt and experienced the impacts of supply chain troubles. Right, we felt that globally, it, it doesn't seem to matter what uh, equipment you were talking about, what was going on. But uh, in particular, traditional battery storage is highly dependent on rare earth elements and metals, uh, and and there is significant supply chain risk that goes along with being reliant on those materials, let alone in an environment where demand is growing rapidly. Um, in the case of mine storage, it would use existing abandoned mines and the infrastructure and water sources that are already there. So it's not reliant on those same supply chains and supply chain risk uh, that these more traditional uh, utility scale battery sources will be. Um, in addition, Brent mentioned, um, when we think about traditional uh, utility scale battery storage, we're measuring discharge times in hours. Whereas the applications we're looking at, we believe we can achieve uh, discharge rates that are measured in days. Uh, that'll be critical here in the upper Midwest where in particular during winter months, we will have extended periods right of, of cold that will require storage for days, not measured in hours to make sure that the grid is affordable, safe, and reliable. Well, if I could jump in, you know, I, th I think the other thing from a strategic perspective that I liked and, and I thought of it as John was talking was, you know, having Michigan Tech attached to this and, and, and having, having, a, having sort of an international combo, folks in Sweden that, uh, that, are, that are doing this as we speak, and having the, the backbone of Michigan Tech and their expertise and their reputation also adds to this. And so I'm a big believer in partnerships accomplishing things. And when we look at Dairyland plus Michigan Tech plus Mind Storage, I, I think there's enough diversity of thought in those three organizations that uh, I think we'll get to the right solution. And that, that attracted me to it as well. Thank you. So. Dr. Scarlett, can you tell us a little bit more about how exactly does mine storage work? Um, mm -hmm. What is the process? Where does the water go? Um, what considerations are there? And are there any sites already potentially identified? Sure. Um, um, those are such great uh, uh, questions. And everybody immediately wants to know about those things. And it's a great uh, it's important to understand that this is a novel um, application, but it's not new, right? This is not like a new technology that someone sketched out on a napkin and got excited about. Hydropower technology, really mature, centuries old, right? Um, mining technology, really mature, centuries old. Um, we're, we're, we as a, as a human society, we're very good at those things. Putting them together in this new way is potentially a transformative solution because 
Um, a normal pumped hydro storage system is, is um, really fundamentally logical, right? You have extra power or cheap power, so you pump water uphill. Um, then when you, you power is expensive or you need power, you let the water flow down through turbines and you generate electricity. And it's a battery, it's not a generator. So it's, you, you will only get 80, 85% of the energy back that you put into the system. But if you do it correctly, um, you make money. And so we have established facilities all around the world, like a local one is the Ludington pumped hydro plant, right? You can go visit and, and, and look and see that operating. It's about 100, um, uh, 100 feet over above Lake Michigan. They pump the water up the hill um, and then and out of Lake Michigan, and then they drain it back into Lake Michigan to generate power. Um, they built that facility uh, in, a little more than 50 years ago now, right? Um, and it's been operating profitably. It's been complicated and, 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 um, um, and whatnot, but it's, a, it's a, a model facility in that sense. It was at one time the largest pumped hydro facility in the world. It's, it's not the largest anymore. Um, but you can't really build those anymore. It's, it's very hard. There are many of those projects in development in the United States, but as all of your listeners would guess, the, um, those areas where you have elevation over bodies of water, um, there are land pressures on the use of that land today that there weren't in the 1950s or 1960s when Ludington was being planned. Um, the environmental concerns of pumping surface waters and discharging into surface waters uh, are different today than they were then. Um, um, taking that entire system and putting it underground where it becomes a closed loop where the upper levels of the mine potentially are the upper reservoir and the lower levels of the mine are the lower reservoir and you're pumping water back and forth between the upper and lower levels or maybe you use the mine's old retention ponds and water treatment plant on the surface as your pond your upper reservoir and you use the mine and the lower levels of the mine as the lower reservoir you can keep it all as a closed loop system um, you're pumping the water back and forth uh, generally, it has all kinds of advantages. If, it, at, at the more you think about it, the more you start to realize. Uh, for example, here in the in in the the Upper Great Lakes region, um, it's if it's underground, it doesn't freeze in the winter time, right? It can operate year round. Um, whereas uh, the uh, a surface pond will need to have extra volume to accommodate surface ice, right? Out west. In an arid region, it's underground. It doesn't evaporate water. It doesn't lose water to evaporation that big surface lakes do. Um, 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 there's already, in this case, we're using infill development. We're using the embodied carbon of the existing mines rather than looking at new green space that we're going to carve up to put in these facilities, right? Um, um, so there's all kinds of potential ecological and social and economic benefits to reusing them. Um, uh, and I get more and more excited about all these different kinds of things, including all different directions you could do this. It's really, it's a fun game to play in your head of what are all the different design options and um, how could you make these things work? What matters in reality is that they also be, um, uh, they be uh, rational and, and they make sense financially for return on investment. Um, and so as one goes through the process of, of um, thinking about these projects, um, um, that you can come at them from several directions. I tend to come at them from the, the idea of what if I'm a municipal government in this mining community? What are the assets that I have to use and what could we do with them? Someone else might come at it from the perspective of an energy company, like our colleagues at Dairyland, Someone might come at it from a standpoint of a grid regulator. What are the what are the, the functions we need on this grid and how could we design the system to meet those needs, right? So ultimately, in thinking about a real site, you need to balance all of these possibilities, right? And so I'm not going to speak in any detail about uh, the, the Dairyland mine storage specific plan because I'm a professor. I'm not a business professional. So I will leave that to John and Brent <laughs> to, to explain. Um, 
Um, but as, as you would imagine, we start this process by just looking at long, long lists of mines. Where are they? How big are they? Um, of what is their situation? Who owns them? What is their geology? What is their water quality? Um, um, and you start with those long lists and sort through them um, and, and see what looks like it might make sense. Thank you. So John and Brent, do you have sort of a decision matrix you would be looking at to ultimately make the decision to move forward with a certain project? And would you have any timeline in mind for the soonest we might see this come to reality? Yeah, I'll let John talk about the uh, sort of the specific boxes we want to have checked, but I'll talk about it strategically. So when we make a decision here, we, we, all, we first focus on our members and the people. So our employees, teammates, the membership, what, what is best for them? And when we, when we talk about what's best for them, it usually starts with our, our, our key parts of our mission, which is providing safe, reliable, and affordable electricity. That's really why we exist. So it has to be safe, it has to be reliable, and it has to be affordable, at least in the context of the market that we're looking at. And so our analysis, particularly I say our analysis, the analysis that John and his team are so good at looking at, looks at those criteria plus others that then get us to a go, no-go. And I think I'll turn it over to John to talk a little bit about the process that we go through sort of generally, not just for this project, but for any generating resource. And then uh, maybe some specifics about the timeline related to this project. Yeah, thanks Brent. So um, really in, in working um, and collaborating with our partners, Michigan Tech and Mind Storage, uh, we've developed what I would call a phased approach here. Um, so as Tim described, uh, first step is really looking at a list of mines in the upper Midwest, um, um, uh, screening those mines down to uh, the sites where we wanna explore in more detail. So looking at where there's a feasibility, uh, potential engineering fit, um, ownership, community acceptance um, will be a big part of this. Um, and, and making sure that in, in the end, a uh, project that we would pursue would be feasible. Uh, from there, then we would build the, the more detailed uh, project and engineering plan. The permitting process would begin uh, and we would ultimately, um, again, conclude with um, uh, construction of a facility. In terms of timelines, um, we're looking here really at the next, uh, I will call it a five to seven year process um, in, in working with our partners. So again, uh, that first step being narrowing down that list, looking at feasibility, engineering design, and then ultimately moving it into a detailed project. So uh, long lead timelines. Um, again, clearly there will be a lot of stakeholder engagement um, along the way, uh, both internal to Darylin, um and mine storage, uh, working with our partners, Michigan Tech, uh, and a lot of outreach in terms of community acceptance. Um, we, we think this is a very workable plan and we're excited to move it ahead. Thank you. So. I was I was thinking back. We mentioned briefly Dairyland's announcement of the exploration of small modular nuclear reactors. Uh, so my question is, which do you think we might see happen first, um, mine storage or SMRs? It'll be mine storage, uh, mine storage, pump storage, some other kind of storage. Um, but obviously we, we like where mine storage is going because of the criteria of utility scale plus discharge duration. You know, John's timeline's right. Um, you know, it's, it's five years out. Um, if you'd asked me, I'd have, say, I'd have said tomorrow is when I want it going, but I'm a little impatient. Uh, nuclear has a 10 year timeline. Um, plants that are current, the plant in Southern Idaho that's being looked at being built you know, they're talking about being in operation, producing electricity in six, seven years from now. Um, and we're behind that. So clearly the, the storage option is gonna be with us before the small modular reactor will be with us. Thank you. So as you look at this project, I want to know more about what the challenges you see coming. Um, Timothy, maybe you could speak to any safety challenges and 
Brent and John, are there any policy challenges you see and um, what, you know, what potential hurdles could come up along the way? You know, to me, the, the big hurdle is going to be permit reform and permitting. Um, there will be a, there will be some group, I don't know who they are, but there will be some group that is against this for whatever reason. And the way the current permitting processes work with the federal government at the state level, those groups can be very successful as a minority voice in slowing down projects. And when a project is slowed down, only one thing happens is the cost escalates. And my single biggest concern, both in conventional construction of power plants, SMRs and mine storage, and, and, and oddly enough, in solar, wind and battery storage construction, the single biggest impediment is federal and state permitting. And there has to be real reform that allows projects to be built and funded by either it's the Inflation, Inflation Reduction Act or ERA, that the money the government is putting towards the clean energy transition, the permitting process has to match the urgency of climate change. And right now it does not. And it's, uh, it defies logic at this point. I'll, uh, I'll follow Brent there. And then maybe Jar can, uh, John can, uh, and um, um, hit batter or hit uh, clean up there for us. So um, um, the one thing I, I want everyone to understand uh, among your listeners is uh, that uh, people don't really appreciate the nature of this solution, how, uh, how big the potential impact of this solution is. And in part, that's because they don't understand how big these mines are underground, many of them. In our case study that we did, our first case study in the in the city of Nagani, Michigan, um, well, we looked at a mine called the Mather, and our estimates, which were generally very conservative estimates, uh, that if one were to build a large scale facility in the Mather, setting all the economics aside of why you would do such a thing, you could build a facility that would provide electricity to everyone in Marquette County for four and a half months from the time that it was fully charged, right? So you're no longer talking about 12 hour storage cycles or 24 hour storage cycles. You could talk about seasonal storage cycles, right? Um, that's incredible. And that's just one mine and one example. Um, um, now, whether that make, it would make financial sense to build something that scale is, that's a, a, a more complicated question, right? As we went through our analysis and we've continued to do that, we have been looking at all different things in relation to um, um, the technical problems of these mines. And every barrier that we think we run into, it turns out that it is um, um, an illusion. Uh, and there are so many examples of that, like um, 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 people talk about their concerns about mine water quality. And really the important thing for people to remember is that the abandoned mines, the historic mines that were from before the 1970s, that environmental contamination is already there. So the question is, does this new project make the water worse in the environment? Or even could it be designed in such a way to make the water quality better over the hundred year operational life of one of these facilities? Could it improve the local ecosystem? Um, um, there are questions about um, geological stability are very important questions, right? There are questions about um, um, electrical infrastructure, but most of these mines were already either producers of electricity or great consumers. And so uh, transmission lines, high capacity transmission lines are often not far away, or they're right along existing right-of-ways and can be connected with very minimal infrastructure. Um, could you design it in a way that, that um, um, adds new bat habitat. Maybe it does, right? Um, um, it could improve uh, uh, mine heritage sites and, and tourism access, public memory, um, all sorts of events that you could design these things to accommodate. The challenge will be, because of the complexity, lining up all of the policy issues and incentive issues needed for these things to make sense. 
because it will always be easier to build a warehouse and fill it with batteries, right? Not necessarily more profitable, but easier. And Tim offered me the, the chance to bet cleanup. I hope you agree, Kristen. So I, I, I agree with both Brent and Tim that, that permitting is, is, is the big challenge here. And um, uh, I had the honor to testify in front of the House Natural Resources Committee uh, back in February uh, as it relates to support of the Builder Act. And, and the Builder Act was a bill introduced uh, um, looking to bring meaningful reform to the NEPA review, the Federal National Environmental Policy Act reviews, uh, impacting uh, many of these projects. And it doesn't matter if those projects are new natural gas plants, transmission lines, or in this case, as we're talking about, uh, a mine storage uh, implementation. Um, happy to report that uh, the Builder Act did get pulled in uh, into law, part of the Debt Ceiling Act. Um, it, it went through. And we're hopeful uh, that this will, in fact, provide meaningful reform in terms of expediting these projects that can bring environmental benefit to the public. We think it's needed and necessary as we talk about this transformation to a lower carbon future. And Tim, Tim brought up a, a point that I want to add on. He and he's 100% correct that it'll always be easier to put a fill a building with batteries. It's interesting that that was what he said after he talked about the potential environmental concerns of mine storage. Think about the future environmental impact of disposing of the battery materials, lithium, ion, cobalt. So that's the future. Think about the present and where those materials come from and what it does to the societies from which it, that it's mined from and what, what people are doing to mine that and what the, the impact sociologically is to those particular regions and the, the people, including the children. And so I, I find it, I always try to seek logic and sometimes I find it, sometimes I don't. But if we have a viable project uh, supported by a not-for-profit member-driven organization like Dairyland and a, a university like, uh, like Tech, and, and we're, we're, we're killing it, somebody's killing it because of the environmental impact and the alternative is lithium ion batteries or vanadium flow batteries, which have to be part of the mix, but it can't be the only solution. And if we're to build momentum for this, we have to build momentum and education on balance and logic in terms of overall uh, global impact and environmental concerns. The, the mining of battery materials is not a United States problem. It's a global problem. And, and, I, and Tim hit it right pro properly. We will improve the water that's in the mines right now. We're not creating a new problem. We're making an old problem better. The more batteries we build, we are just building a future problem for disposal. We're beginning to see disposal problems with wind turbine blades. Re expensive recycling and disposal of solar panels that are reaching end of life. You know, this is a solution that will make the world better, not worse in the long term. But for some reason, the ba battery industry has gotten a free pass on the environmental impact, and I'm I struggle finding the logic in that. It, I'm going to jump in one more time, Kristen, if that's okay, because it I. Just to, to conclude those thoughts, um, 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 if I were talking, if we were having a conversation about the mining industry and sustainable mining, I can't imagine a world in which you're trying to design a mine today, um, an underground mine where you're not considering pumped hydro storage as the solution, right? As the, the long-term sustainable solution for the afterlife of that mine. And um, 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 the, the, the ways in which we, we think through a lot of these. Um, um, I, I hope that uh, we will be able to find ways that we can implement the, the, the design process as this collaborative and inclusive process so that it can stand in as completing a bunch of your legal review like NEPA and NHPA review and things like that, which one normally does after one has a design for a project. Um, 
um, um, try and do a lot of that beforehand so that the design incorporates those issues, those themes, those, those community concerns and community partners um, participating in them. Uh, and then th at the end result is an expedited process through the checklist of you, met, you did this, you did that, you did that, boom. And you have a sensitive design that meets all these needs and, and can get approved and get implemented quickly. Uh, but the, 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 the firms and the agencies have to see um, that um, 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 a commitment to that process, right? That those, there will be benefit to an inclusive, more open process at the beginning. Instead of coming up with a plan for a utilities facility that then people are going to yell at about in a public meeting, right? Um, 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 flipping that planning process to be more inclusive, that is perhaps the greatest single challenge of this opportunity. Thanks, Tim. And a lot of this conversation uh, was leading up to really where I ultimately wanted to go um, to wrap things up. And that that was just to ask, how can we be the embed? <laughs> How can we be the best environmental stewards possible as we're going through this process? And I think both of you, you know, summed it up well. It's like just just the process of doing this is reusing um, a mind that already exists um, and potentially preventing new mining from happening. Is there anything else I'm missing there um, on environmental stewardship or any other aspect of the project? Um, I'll add just a, a general idea, like one of the things that I found most rewarding in, in now the years working on this idea, when we put together these teams of, of students and professionals from all over campus, and we get really excited and they, they, they generate ideas and they're, um, um, I, I often describe it being like, you know, that scene from Apollo 13, um, that the engineers are all forced into a room and the person says, if we don't figure out how to fit this, Thing into this thing using only what's in this box, everyone's going to die, right? The engineers love that. Engineering students love that kind of a challenge. Like here are our limitations, but here's our potential, and let's figure out how to make that happen. Um, the challenge is not engineering the solutions to the technical issues of building an underground mine storage facility. The challenge is going to be in aligning the policy issues, the financial issues, the regulatory issues. Um, and doing it in a way that makes sense in each context. Um, so my hope is that we'll be able to get the um, uh, municipal leaders and the politicians at the state and federal level and their staffs to be as excited about this as we are so that they can roll up their sleeves and figure out how can we really facilitate this process and make this happen because this solution can be so elegant and it's so... Um, um, it's so well demonstrated as a technology. It's so likely to work and it will solve so many problems. How can we facilitate this? Um, um, that's what I think is going to be our biggest challenge. Justin, I, I think there's one other element here as well. You know, we talked about the environmental benefits here, but um, in addition, some of these mining communities, right, uh, they, they went through boom times and, and then bust. And I think the opportunity to um, bring, again, an, a productive economic asset into these communities and the potential economic revitalization that goes with it should also not be overlooked. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump in again because I just want, and I'm sure many of your listeners would know this, but we're, um, we here in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, many of us pay the highest electricity rates for residential customers in the United States, in the continental United States. They're comparable to Hawaii and Alaska. Um, so seeing energy infrastructure evolve is something that if you approach it correctly, uh, people in former mining regions will be very inclined to support, but not in a simplistic way, right? They're, they, they have a nuanced relationship with their environments and their places and their landscapes, just like anyone else does. Um, but they definitely um, um, has often have this need for uh, redevelopment for every park city or steamboat springs. Um, there are hundreds of post mining communities that don't have those assets that they can benefit from like those cities. Yeah, and I think, 
I think we're taking the same approach we have with small modular reactors. This is start early. And the reason we want to start early is that we can have an inclusive dialogue that can educate the entire span of the people that are just 100% all in and don't care about the environment and the people on the other end of the spectrum. And it's about bringing people together through dialogue, inclusion, and education that'll get us to the end quicker. Uh, and that's why we want to start this as soon as we possibly can. That's a great point. Thanks, Brent. All right, let's get to our final question for all of our guests. And that is, if you had all the power in the industry, what would you do with it? And Brent, your microphone is on. So I'm going to turn to you first, if you don't mind. Sure. Well, it, de it depends. You're talking the electricity industry and uh, power generation. So that I would, is correct. I would However, I, and I have unlimited money. Too. Yeah, I have unlimited money, right? So right now, I would be building a nuclear power plant, and I would be building the uh, the mine storage facility in the Upper Peninsula. And I, I, my background is civil engineering and construction. That this is. Uh, this has all been done before on the mine storage side of things. There's really no reinvention of the wheel. And I'll let, I'll let Tim kind of weigh in if I'm right on that. But when you talk about 24-7 baseload energy, that's SMR that doesn't emit carbon. That's, that, if I started today, I'm 10 years away. In the interim, it would be pump storage. And right now, the best idea I see out there is mine storage. And that would allow us to transition away from fossil fuels quicker, but not tomorrow. Thank you, Brent. Tim, we'll turn to you next. And I just want yeah. to say it's true of all of you, but especially you just getting to know you, Tim, your enthusiasm on this issue is just infectious. And you've got well, me excited about, about you, it as well. And, I, and I'm, I want to uh, just uh, to point out something for Brent. One of the, the things that I found about this underground pumped hydro storage um, project is that it 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 uh, it is it, it it makes sense to everyone that we interact with um, as you think about the the potential because it it doesn't matter what your political tribe is and we're we're having a lot of problems with our political system in the United States. Um, 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 this this solution appeals. Uh, no matter what you're doing. Originally, pumped hydro storage was developed because it paired with uh, nuclear power plants. That's why Ludington was built. The idea uh, originally, the, the, um, the Department of Defense thought about this idea in the 1960s and uh, uh, maybe even early in the late 50s, where they were trying to build nuclear bomb-proof nuclear power systems for their, uh, for their bases. And they came up with this idea of using nuclear bombs underground to blow open cavities, and then they could pump water between the cavities um, with the, the, the concept that um, 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 the pumped hydro storage system will operate profitably. It doesn't matter if you're hooking it up to a nuclear reactor or a coal plant or wind turbines or a solar field. Um, 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 it will work to moderate the the, the curves of, of production from renewables or um, uh, because the curves of demand don't match the big central producers of like a coal plant or a nuclear plant um, where you can't ramp up and down production to meet demand. You can use this to offset those things that we now use peaker plants for, right? Um, it can provide all these other capacity like black star capacity, frequency regulation, all these other kinds of things that are some of which are monetized, some of which are not. You can energy island on them, right? Um, um, all of that is is um, that potential is so strong that um, it appeals and it makes sense to everyone, no matter their political background. So, if you were to give me all the money in the world as someone who's not a um, um, uh, in in the electrical industry, what I would actually do is I would take our um, our our uh, approach to this study, and I would spin up some undergraduate teams to advise people, and we would then begin promoting that as a resource in mining communities all over the country, where 
um, um, they could replicate what we did in our initial assessment of their mining heritage. It's their mining heritage. What do they know about it? Well, it turns out that a lot of the information you need to do even very basic planning, not just how deep is the mine, but how big is it at the bottom of the mine versus how big is it at the top of the mine, right? Um, um, that kind of information is often held by little local archives, by county historical societies, by mining museums, um, in, the, in the memory or the, the family memory of miners and their descendants. How can people organize themselves in communities to think about their energy system, the history of their local energy system, their minds and the history of their minds, and whether or not and how these things could be put together in a productive way that solves problems for the local community while also providing value to the regional grid, to the whole area within the, the service area or whatever unit of the grid you want to talk about, right? That's what I'd do is I'd start sort of a grassroots um, 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 educational opportunity to provide support to people doing those studies so that you can get communities to work with um, um, energy professionals as well as the regulators and the government people and the agency people um, to make these things come to pass where it makes sense. That's awesome, Tim. Thank you so much. What a what a good idea. All right, John, how about you? What would you do with all the power? Well, I think um, in, in a couple of the examples Brent and Tim gave, we, we equated power and money. So I'm going to use a money example. Uh, if I had all that money, all the power, all the money, I don't think I would put it into just one stock. Uh, much like an investment portfolio, I think from an energy policy standpoint, a diverse energy mix matters. And that's what's really a key to success. It has been for the US throughout our history. Um, I would make sure that policies and programs are in place to ensure that we maintain a diverse supply of energy. Um, I think that's key to our future, uh, to safe, reliable, and affordable. And that would be where I would take us. Perfect. Well, Dr. Scarlett, Brent, John, thank you so much to each of you for joining today. And thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you as always. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in. Please support our work. You can subscribe to the Electric Wire podcast if you haven't already. And you can follow us on Twitter at The Electric Wire. Thanks also to the members of the Customers First Coalition for supporting this podcast. Our members are Dairyland Power Cooperative, Madison Gas and Electric, the Municipal Electric Utilities of Wisconsin, WPPI Energy, the Citizens Utility Board, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 2150, and the Wisconsin Electric Cooperatives Association. Thanks again for listening. We'll have a new episode next month.